We did it, film fans. 2020, a.k.a. the most depressing year in recent history, is almost over. Time to celebrate. Cheers, y'all. 2021 is nigh. Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast. It's the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. I'm your host, Brandon Champion. It is Tuesday, December 29th, 2020. Uh, 2021 really is just right on the horizon. I uh, hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever you celebrate. Hope you got some good stuff, spent some quality time with the family. Uh, I'm here with my film family, Mike Nichols and Evan Dean. Uh, Evan, what's the best thing you got for for Christmas this year? Oh, man, you're going to put me on the spot there. You know what? I'm going to be sentimental and say I got to see my mom, my sister, my brother-in-law, and my uh, my little niece and nephew. We went to North Florida this past weekend, went up there, traveled. Um, busy, busy week, busy weekend, but it was a lot of fun. And, and just getting to see them after what's been just a crazy year, um, especially seeing my mom, who I haven't seen in a long time. It's uh, That was the best gift this Christmas. Wow. Way to take the high road, buddy. I would have said like <laughs> PS5, but you're, you're just like, oh, I get to spend time with family. It was nice. Uh, Mike Nichols is also with us from Texas. Uh, Mike, did you get any snow in Texas and how was your Christmas? No, it's been uh, warm and sunny all winter here. This is going to be the first winter that I don't have seasonal depression and I'm very excited about it. And uh, I got—I didn't get too much for Christmas this year just because I was away from everyone, but uh, someone did get me a Friar Tuck Stein in celebration of the Robin Hood script that I wrote about Friar Tuck. So I have a Stein now with Friar Tuck on it. It's pretty nerdy, but I absolutely love it. I mean, I, I don't I'm like nerdy. I mean, that's not really your vibe at all. It's kind of a total change in, in pace for you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Evan. Hey, we, I mean we, it with love. <laughs> hey, we're all film nerds around here. That's for sure. I mean, uh, you know, we can all be nerdy film people. I'm okay with that. But uh, what did what, you get, Champ? What did you get for Christmas? Oh, I got a, I got a lot of good stuff, man. I got uh, I got a lot of new clothes. My my wife apparently thinks my wardrobe is outdated, so I got a, mm. I got a lot of new clothes, which which I definitely needed. Um, got some golf stuff. Um, so yeah. All around good Christmas. It was, uh, we definitely overdid it on the presents this year. I think everyone was feeling a little bit like we needed to bring some happiness into people's lives. So uh, the tree was a little overflowing. I'm like, wow, we are extra as hell and extremely fortunate. Uh, that's all I kept thinking. So, but uh, hope everyone had a good Christmas. Obviously, we have New Year's coming up. Uh, hope everyone's going to stay safe. Follow the protocols, please, so we can get through this damn bullshit for once and for all. Um, but Mike, Evan, thanks for being here. It's good to, good to see you guys. We're recording on Zoom for the first time, so we're actually looking at each other. It's kind of nice. Instead of, instead of just, like, guessing when the person is going to stop, we can, like, <laughs> give each other, like, a finger click or something, you know, like, go! <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, or, or you can do that. Yeah, nice, Mike. Uh, anyways, Flipping us the bird, Mike. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Is that how they say hi in Texas? Yeah, that's how they say hi everywhere in 2020. <laughs> Anyways, we got a busy show today. Um, we're going to review three films uh, that have come out, two of which have gotten some significant Oscar buzz, and they're both directed by uh, pretty noteworthy names in Hollywood. We're also going to touch on the hit Netflix miniseries, Queen's Gambit, uh, which Mike and Evan have both completed. I'm, I'm working my way through it as we speak. If you could please like, rate, and review the Second Day Film Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, it uh, would be very much appreciated. Share it with your friends. Invite people to like our Facebook page. I hope you guys enjoyed our uh, 
our uh, favorite Christmas films that we put up there, and Mike Mike used his 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 decorative and design skills to make some sweet sick collages to throw up there. Um, I liked your your chess your chess uh, challenge. Who's better, Hermione or Beth Harmon? We'll get to that. Or Hermione, Ron or Beth Harmon? We'll get to that in this, when we review Queen's Gambit, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, appreciate everyone for listening here today. Um, so let's get to it. Let's jump into our first film. This film just came out on Christmas Day. It's Wonder Woman 1984. The plot summary in IMDb. Rewind to the 1980s as Wonder Woman's next big screen adventure finds her facing two all, t- all new foes, Max Lord and the Cheetah. Uh, this film, much like its predecessor, is directed by Patty Jenkins. Gal Gadot stars as Diana Prince, Wonder Woman. We've also got uh, Captain Kirk himself, Chris Pine, Kristen Wiig, the Mandalorian, Pedro Pascal, uh, Robin Wright, Connie Nielsen also make brief appearances. Um, so pretty fun, pretty fun, although condensed cast, I would say. Uh, Evan, I don't think you've seen this one, uh, but I just watched it. And Mike, I know you saw it um, like on Christmas or really recently. Um, so first, before you tell me about this one, did you see the first Wonder Woman and what did you think of that? Yeah, I saw the first Wonder Woman. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was a great movie. I thought Gal Gadot absolutely just knocked it out of the park as uh, Princess Diana. Um, and so when this one came out, I was really looking forward to it. Um, you know, it's got a great director. It's got a great star. Um, it's got a great superhero. And uh, I was sad to see, like, it had to go through kind of the 2020 pains of shifting from theater to, you know, uh, online and stuff and doing digital. It's definitely going to maybe throw off the way this movie would have been experienced, but for what it's worth, um, it's an enjoyable movie. I wouldn't say it's like, you know, going to blow you away, but it's still, it's just a solid superhero movie um, with, I think actually a very good message and a really good like problem to solve for the characters. But it does suffer from a little bit of that like sequel overload type stuff that you hear about where there's just kind of too many characters. There's too many like things to go get and stuff. But overall, it still is a, is a pretty solid movie. Um, the basic plot of it is that um, in the 80s, Wonder Woman is um, living her life, uh, still kind of being a superhero secretly. And then there's this uh, special device, that a dream stone that they can make a wish on. And uh, if you wish for something, it comes true. She wishes that Steve Trevor comes back. He comes back. And uh, another character wishes to have powers. And she gets those powers. That's how she becomes Cheetah. That's uh, Kristen Wiig. And um, yeah, so then this evil guy who's like kind of like a Lex luthor type guy uh, played very, very like over the top by uh, Pedro Pascal in a lot of fun ways over the top. Um, he then makes a wish to basically become the stone to be able to grant all the wishes and stuff and whatever the wish grants though it also takes as well so it's a really interesting like challenge for the characters to have this wish granting also have sacrifices that you're not really ready to pay and for Wonder Woman she has to struggle with those challenges of hey if she loses her powers and she can't save everyone is it worth Steve coming back? And it's, it's a really good challenge for the characters. I love like the villain plot of this movie. Um, unfortunately it does kind of like jump around a lot. And uh, at the end, like the final fight with Cheetah, um, the CGI was like, it was okay, I guess, but it looked a little, a little off, uh, you know, for the character that you see in the comics, who's very bright, very colorful. Um, the 
Kristen Wiig Cheetah, I wasn't super impressed by. But overall, good performances from everyone, um, especially Gal Gadot, who's just, man, she is really, really charming as Wonder Woman. She just has such an inviting confidence about her. Um, so overall, this is a good movie to see with the kids, and it has a good message. Um, but yeah, it's not going to be as mind-blowing as the first one. So I can already tell you like this movie way more than I do. Um, but uh, when the first Wonder Woman came out, it was kind of the first like movie within the DC extended universe that people were like, oh, that wasn't terrible. It was actually good. I like this movie. Like it, it, uh, it had some heart to it. it I like that they, you know, it took place in World War II. So it had a different vibe. You know, I just think that, you know, Wonder Woman more World so War than one. World War One. World War, just World the War way one. that it was better at capturing the the aura of wonder woman it, it just captured it a lot better than like batman vs superman where they were doing weird things with the characters yeah. and and other stuff like that um so this movie i was excited to see come out uh mike i have to disagree with you on pretty much everything though uh i thought this movie was kind of a mess to be honest with you um i i, I was excited that I like that they went with the prequel idea because Diana's character, when she appears in Batman vs Superman and Justice League, she kind of is like this mysterious, sexy art curator, but we don't really know much about her. And we're just, other than that, she's Wonder Woman, obviously. But so this movie kind of fills in her backstory a little bit more, kind of flushes her out, gives her more, uh, gives us more insight into her motivations and why she is the way she is in the present day. So I thought that was smart to go with that um, route. But this movie, especially from a, from a, I agree with what you said about Gal Gadot. I think that she, from a, from a, you know, obviously from a physical standpoint, she, she captures everything that you think about with Wonder Woman. I mean, sexy, feisty, strong, talented, smart, you know, she, she embodies Wonder Woman pretty well. I do think her acting is a little bit limited at times. You, you seem to think that she does a better job portraying the role. I kind of feel like she's a little bit rigid. I'm not sure she's a great actress, but from a physical standpoint, I think that she does a wonderful job capturing the character. My biggest issue with this movie is it just feels jumbled. It feels the script is way too convenient. There's a lot of like built-in screenwriting cheat codes in this movie. For example, uh, basically the, the stone that you talked about can magically grant wishes. That basically drives the whole plot. It's the reason Steve comes back. It's the reason Kristen Wiig's nerd becomes cool. It's the reason that Max Lord becomes successful and gains power. Uh, and, and because of this device, this MacGuffin that you've created, everything that happens in the story just feels way too convenient to me. And I have some other examples of that. Um, but I just wonder what, what you think of, of those criticisms. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely points where it felt a little clunky and some of the emotional moments uh, did like feel like with the character, the the villain and his son, like some of those moments felt a little bit way too cheesy. Yeah, they're going to um, arrest him, right? Like he's going to get arrested. He doesn't just go live his life with his kid, right? Like, Yeah, but so, even some of the dialogue, I just want you to be proud of me. Oh, you're my daddy. I am proud of you. Like it was just like, oh, okay, this is a little, a little sappy at points. But I mean, I don't know, like over. Oh, but what about, like, but what about, what about like, just let me a little bit more of the convenient stuff in the script. Sure. 
Uh, They just happen to find the plane ticket in the trash to find out he's going to Cairo. There's the random Mayan ancestor who just explains everything and has all the answers to everything they need. Uh, You know, when they're like, oh, by the way, this lasso can also make you see the truth in addition to telling the truth because we need you to know the backstory about this armor. You know, when they're, they're in the White House, the tour guide just doesn't notice them sneak off. Like, there's just so many shortcuts. And to me, it was lazy storytelling. Like I said, everything was just a little too convenient. So the way the story unfolded for me just didn't work. I mean, I also admit that I don't really know much about the comics. So in terms of like, what does the last, I know it's the last little truth. I know it like is really strong and it makes you tell the truth, but I, like, does it make you see the truth? I personally don't know. So I'm just going to go with it when I watch the movie or go with that take on it. Um, I uh, like, you know, I don't know about the Dreamstone in the DC comics. I don't really, I didn't even know about Cheetah's backstory. So like for me, I guess I was just watching it as a very ignorant, you know, just, okay, I'm just watching this movie at face value. So for a viewer like me, yeah, I thought there were, there was a little bit of clunkiness in the storytelling and there was some cheesiness and some of the big emotional hit moments, but you know, overall, like it was fine. It was a superhero movie, you know, and it, it did hit all the points that those type of movies hit and the lead was terrific. There was great chemistry with Chris Pine and Gal Gadot. Um, I thought the fireworks scene was just really special. Like that was just some nice movie magic right there. And uh, Wonder Woman just makes responsibility feel wholesome. I think that's what I really came away really loving about her as a superhero that she just takes all these good qualities and makes them seem so like worth having and worth fighting for versus other movies where it's like, Oh, like power, like oh, strength is a burden. Having to be good is so hard. Like she makes it be like, yeah, it is hard, but it's like, Oh, it's so, so cleansing and good for the world. So yeah, she, I didn't, I, I gave it, I give it a, I give it a B. I give it a B. I didn't ask you for your grade yet. Evan, do you have any, uh, do you oh, have any? Well, I offer it, sir. Merry <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> do you have any, uh, did you see the first Wonder Woman? I, probably not. Did you uh, no. have any, uh, any thoughts or questions? Well, it sounds, it sounds from what you've described, it sounds kind of cheesy. You know, I guess if it's an 80s, it takes place in the 80s, that's kind of fitting that it would be cheesy. But um, I mean, I'm just looking at it from, IMDb and after 75 80,000 public votes it's got a 5.6 which that's low for a public vote so for whatever reasons maybe your reasons champ uh, it looks like people weren't crazy about it uh, so I will say that I do think Gal Gadot is a good embodiment of the character um, we get to see the invisible jet that's the that's the the fireworks scene you're talking about Mike we get use the lasso a lot so if you're a longtime fan of Wonder Woman you're going to get excited seeing you know these things on screen I did think like the the conclusion not not the one where when she's fighting Cheetah I agree that was clunky but um, sort of the the final conclusion uh, of the film like specifically how she defeated Max Lord um, by sort of showing him the error of his ways I thought it was creative and well done and that did feel emotionally impactful to me it, it felt like uh so maybe if the road that we took to get there i thought was a little bit too convenient and maybe didn't make perfect sense i thought the climax of everyone realizing that their wishes are causing too much trouble that are, are causing issues i did think that that was pretty well done well i have to say actually that fell it, it was cool to see but it felt it fell really flat in 2020 Cause like, I'm just watching it. I'm like, well, we're in a situation globally where people's choices are obviously causing mass harm. 
and people are just not caring. So to see like Wonder Woman be like, well, if they all see that their their choices are causing harm, they'll stop and everyone will just do the right thing. And it's like, yeah, we're literally living in the, the one year where that message is not going to land that, oh yeah, people will totally just fall in line and do the right thing, just help each other. Cause that's, but, but even if it doesn't this land- This is the worst possible year for that message. Even if it doesn't land, isn't it still important to put that message out there? I guess you got to try. I guess you got to try. <laughs> so, so let me get this straight. What you liked, Mike, Champ didn't. And what Champ liked, Mike didn't. You guys are just on point tonight. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's that, if it comes down to that bare bones simple. I just, I, th- I just think that I just want, I mean, you can say, yeah, it's just a superhero movie. They're not obviously known for plot and character development. I mean, but they are. I mean, Avengers is obviously the great with the character development, but they of course did that over several, several films, but this is the fourth movie we've seen Wonder Woman in. And, and I'm just now, like, I just now feel like I'm starting to get to know who she actually is as a person. And I feel like that's an issue. <laughs> wow. But I, uh, I, I imagine the next movie will be even better. <laughs> yeah, I know. There is another sequel uh, coming, apparently. Um, and one thing we should also note, did you see the, the post credit scene where uh, Linda Carter showed up? Who? Yeah, that was a nice tribute. Yeah, she, of course, played Wonder Woman in the 1970s television series. So she makes a cameo as like the, the legendary warrior who Gal Gadot, who Wonder Woman's uh, armor she dons. What did you think of the action set pieces? Because my favorite one was the one on the road in, in Egypt. I thought that was the one that was most exciting. Um, the rest of them were eh, just kind of meh for me. Um, I really liked the intro where she's fighting in the mall. I thought that was cool. I liked the highway scene. That was good, although it, it did feel a little short. Um, I thought the White House fight was was cool with with Cheetah. Wonder Woman just the way the way the stylized fighting with with her character is just so like smooth and so graceful. It's really enjoyable to watch. The the one that didn't really work for me that much was the Cheetah fight, but that was mostly just because I, I thought that Cheetah like special effects really just kind of turned me off to it it's not that it didn't look necessarily real it just it was just an awkward looking creature versus like if you look at the comics and like if you've seen any other the like justice league cartoons or something cheetah's like a very like uh, colorful character so to see her like is this muted dark gray with this like almost like it almost looked like someone took one of the cat's characters from that movie and just like made it like evil looking it it didn't work for me Um, i'm sorry have you seen cats because i have (laughs) i have not seen it it's on hbo though and i'm waiting for a good moment to just like have a have a trash night and just watch it yeah instead of making like a a a villain that actually felt like she was had become fully ferocious it really just felt like like someone had let their mutated animal out of a cage (laughs) like it it, did she didn't feel like she didn't feel like the same character that we met at the beginning of the, of the movie. So I would agree with that. I, I mean, I, I, you gave it a B I, I'm, I gave it a, I'm going to give it a six. Cause I know it sounds like I was just ripping on this movie the whole time, but I do think Gal Gadot is a good wonder woman. Um, definitely think someone went up to Max Lord and said, I wish that the perfect human would exist. And then Gal Gadot showed up. Um, so, but, uh, fantastic, uh, you know, she's good for the role. We'll say that, but I did think this writing was not very good. Um, and I did kind of let me down a little bit and it definitely wasn't as good as the original. Will you at least agree with me on that? Yep. All right. 
So uh, that's Wonder Woman. It's on HBO Max streaming now. You can also go see it in the theaters. Um, I think it's streaming till like the end of January on HBO Max. So you can you can check it out there if you've got that. Um, so yeah. Uh, let's move it along. Um, let's just jump into Queen's Gambit, Mike, because I want to get Evan in here a little bit. People get sick of ta- hearing, hearing you and me go back and forth here. I'll um, see you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? Nothing, nothing. Let's just go. You got something to say? Got something no. to say? Come no. say it to my face. All right. Uh, <laughs> Queen's Gambit, orphaned at the tender age of nine, prodigious introvert Beth Harmon discovers and masters the game of chess in 1960s USA. But child stardom comes at a price. Um, This show was created by Scott Frank and Alan Scott. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy in the main role. Uh, Bill Camp is also in this. Chloe Peary, Marcin Dorachinsky. A lot of of people I don't really know. Harry Melling, though, he's popping up again all over the place. That's Dudley, right? So uh, we just – what movie did we just review where he was in – a devil all the time devil all the time yeah um so he's getting some more roles here uh and he's a lot skinnier than he used to be uh but evan i'll bring you in here i've only seen two episodes of the queen's gambit so if you guys could kind of talk in vague terms i would appreciate it um but uh what what do you think of this series um yeah i mean uh, first off it's a it's a mini series so it's about seven episodes an hour each ish and i just crushed it I mean, I started it and it couldn't have been two weeks until I had finished it. Um, and first off, I guess I'll say I've never been a chess fan. I'm not a chess fan. Don't play chess. And I actually found myself interested in chess. So the series in that sense, I think uh, it kind of brings people into this sport that at least in 1960s USA, if, if this story is to be believed, was very, very popular. And um and I, I think that just the, the game and the, I think I didn't realize how complicated, how layered, how um, strategic the game is. I mean, it's, you, you really dive into that world and, and that's kind of fun and actually makes me interested and kind of interested to play. But I think that uh, the main thing, you, you know, you take away when watching the show is the lead, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. She's Honestly, she's like, um, she's like, you know, an actress. I don't even know how to describe her. She's, she's almost unlike any actress I've ever watched before. She's got this kind of haunting, um, alluring, mysterious, troubled, um, just entire way about her. She's really hard to figure out. Uh, as viewers and she's really hard to understand and she's really hard to um you know simp- you know know exactly where she's coming from and what she's thinking and that's felt by the viewers and it's also felt by all of the characters uh because she's immersed in this world of chess which you know all the other great chess players are um you know they're all men so um, I, I thought that she did a fantastic job. I was really blown away by her performance and I wouldn't be surprised if she becomes one of those actresses who is racking up nominations for the big awards um, in short order. I mean, I was, I was that impressed by, by her performance. Mike, what about you? What did you really like about it? Uh, yeah. I mean, one of the top notes I have is just Anya Taylor-Joy just absolutely crushed it. She, she really shows so many different 
character traits uh, in just these really up, like tight, close facial expressions, mm-hmm. um, little ticks she does with her, with her like eyes and her cheeks, like everything that she's doing in her face just reveals so much about the different like layers of the character Beth Harmon. She, um, you know, you were saying like you haven't seen any actress like her. She kind of reminded me a little bit, not totally, but a little bit of Vanessa Kirby. She played Princess Margaret in the first uh, two seasons of The Crown, who is an incredible actress. But it's that ability just to make like these really unexpected choices that you're like, whoa, I, like, I don't know why this character is doing this. And yet, like, as you keep like following, it just all starts to really work really well. Like it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a performance with a lot of different flavors in the cocktail. And at first you can taste the different things and you're like, what is this? But then by the end, you're like, whoa, that's a good drink. And Anya Taylor-Joy just absolutely knocked this role out of the park with all those different variances in it. Um, even just like the way like she physically, the way her character moves as she matures, like the way she walks, like when she's like in the younger Beth and then like as she gets older, like just, just watch the way that she walks. Like she even does that like differently. She has different walks. The way the colors change um, also does a good job. Like the art styles in this movie were incredible. The costumes, the design, the sets, like the lighting, everything really developed the story really well through the storytelling of scenery and through color. Um, yeah. Also to your point about chess, like it does, uh, I think it was sales of chess sets like went up. I think it was like a thousand percent. They said due to the series, there was a lot of different people reaching yeah. out to grandmasters and stuff. Um, and uh, another thing I loved about it was it was kind of like a little strange thing to notice, but uh, I don't think this is going to spoil anything for you champ, but there really was no villain. Like, yes, there's different people that she plays throughout the course and there's different levels of challenge and against those players, but there's not, none of them who are like trying to hurt her or like screw her up or like, or, like doing any major cheating. Like, it's not like that. Like everyone um, is just a good chess player who cares about like winning and doing their best. And she has to finally contend that the greatest villain in her own journey is really going to be herself. She puts on it, her own addictions, her own insecurities, her own like social um, kind of isolation. Um, That was one thing I thought was very, very unique about this mini series is that for so many stories about like, you know, a up and coming orphan trying to make it, you know, the only woman in this like industry to succeed, there weren't really any villains. I thought that was a very, fascinating um part of this story and i hope i hope people go and read the book i'd like to read the book now having seen this um yeah i I think this was just tremendous i feel like that that maybe goes back to you know chess is at least the way they portray it early on and i I assume throughout is chess is supposed to be this gentleman's game right where there's like these there's this etiquette and these unwritten rules where like you have to uh what are they what are they what's the word they use withdrawal or uh concede or resign or whatever they say um it's it's like this it's sort of like baseball how it has its unwritten rules and etiquette and chess is like this gentleman world where these rules and etiquette is followed and i think that you know at least through the first two episodes they is which is what i've seen they really thrust you into that and show you what that's all about but i think mike going back to your point about no no villains i mean it is i think this really is at its core is a character study about her mm-hmm. and, and her, yeah. de- her development and how her world unfolds and how it changes through this journey she goes on. But at least early on, I just love the way that they're putting us in her head. And that's done in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. That's done through the close-ups. You know, I mean, Taylor Joy, I remember she was in The Witch, 
where which is the first time I saw her and she was doing a lot of facial stuff there um you know she was also in that split movie she was doing a little bit more physical with, with James McAvoy she was doing a little more physical acting there but but I, she really knows how to capture things like it's like she like will subtly move her cheekbones or she'll move her eye like a little bit to the right and even through two episodes you can see that she's walking different when she's in the first episode when she's played by a different actress who's younger and she's lacking confidence and as that episode goes on she gets more and more confident to the point where she walks up into place and and tries to steal all the drugs but then even in the second episode when we first see Anya Taylor-Joy she's walking even more confidently in that episode compared to the first episode so and i assume that's just going to continue to develop throughout the show yeah yeah and and you're right because you know i described her as a mysterious character and i think that's that's how she's perceived by us and also by you know the characters the other characters but you're right like the subtleties um the little things that she does that do kind of reveal um what she's going through what's going on in her head um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's always a challenge, um, you know, to have a character who struggles internally with themselves and she does such a great job. I think that, well, and we, we, sorry, I don't mean to improve, but we also see that. Yeah. I, I forgot a point. We also see what's going on in her head manifested by her playing chess on the ceiling and stuff where she's like, she can't yeah. sleep. And she's like, Oh my God, I'm so crazy. And I, I literally can't live my life without being able to do this. Cause either it takes your mind off stuff. That's like this deep seated. Well, you know, yeah, I don't know how she, it gets flushed it, out, but it's, it doesn't ever really, Yeah, but it's when she, you know, when she takes the pills, she somehow has this ability to, play chess on the ceiling um, but it's clearly I, a coping mechanism because yeah. we see there's some sort of i mean we see the tragedy that in the first episode that happened where her mom was clearly crazy and sure. she had a troubled upbringing so maybe the chess and taking the drugs is clearly a way to sort of bury some of these deep-seated issues she has yeah well, and i think uh, go ahead mike because I, I just had i had a criticism but i'll let you kind of comment on that yeah well just just kind of keep in mind i haven't read the book but um chess is a game where you really do play it like five moves ahead so my dad my dad is a great chess player i grew up playing chess with him um i'm an okay player i I enjoy the game um some of the moves they're mentioning i i I did actually recognize because my dad has played them and i've learned a little bit of it but the idea of like the way that they they visualize her visualizing the game with like seeing it in these shadow pieces on the ceiling um i think like i don't know how the book does it but just keep in mind that might just be an artistic portrayal of yeah how someone uh just watches something in their head because like if i were to tell you guys like hey do you ever just watch a movie in your head like you don't actually see a tv screen on the ceiling playing a movie like Maybe maybe it's that was just the artistic choice they made yeah. to portray how, how how Beth analyzes a game in her head. But you do do that with especially if you have a photographic memory, and a lot of these great chess players do. Um, but like you do that when you play. So like you, if you're playing a chess game, you you think okay, if I move this piece there, then what will they do? And then if they do that, mm-hmm. what will I do? And then if I do that, then what will they like? My dad always taught me you always play chess five moves ahead. So not yeah. just the next move you think is a good move for you, but then think what would they do then? And what would they like, obviously you do that with most games, but with chess, you really actually have to do it way more systematically, way more analytically. So I wonder if her seeing the stuff on the ceiling was just a representation of that. Um, and not necessarily like, I don't know, drugs making her magic, magic chess or whatever. Yeah, that, but, yeah, that's, you're probably right. I mean, I, I think that 
it's never really explained. So I guess that's probably the most logical explanation because yeah. it isn't. I, I just was remarking that, yeah, when she does do that, that's after she's taken drugs. And there's even some competitions where she goes to the bathroom, takes some drugs, comes back, you know, so, so right. I think it all has to do with the coping and how she deals. And I think that my only criticism of the whole series was that, um, you know, the entire time she's struggling and she's obviously had a, a really hard upbringing and she's gone on this really difficult journey to prove herself to herself. And it ends so cleanly, you know, I'm just like, I don't know. It just felt you're going to have this character who has such a tortured young existence for lack of a better word. And then it's just going to end so neatly. I just didn't seem, it didn't feel like that's the way it should have ended. Like on such a pleasant note. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, you know, that's I, I agree my that, one thing. Yeah. I agree with the ending with like, and I, we won't spoil anything, I think champ, but like, you know, the final games that she plays, like, it just kind of seems to almost the entire ending seems to almost end like in a montage. Yes. There's some scene work, but like the entire like major culmination of her, her chess journey, it almost just kind of seems, Oh, well it's, that's done. Oh, okay. Like that was, yep. Okay. It was too neat. It know? was. I mean, yeah. it was, she went to the final tournament and played out how it played out. She's all happy and having fun. I don't know. It just, just because of how the journey to get there didn't feel like it should have ended that way. I would actually have not been surprised at all if it had a little bit darker of an ending, but they, they tied it up in a bow for Christmas. They're just like, they did. <laughs> yeah. You'll yeah. see. But yeah, I mean, I gave it an eight out of 10 as far as series, you know, series goes, um, series go. I mean, I really liked it. I thought her performance was like I said, fantastic, and um, almost gave you know I was probably eight, 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 maybe eight point five, but um, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see more of her and see her you know at the Academy Awards down the road. Do you think Golden Globes, Emmys, possible for her for this? Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely, she'll get nominated yeah. for something. Oh yeah. Best actress in a miniseries. I'd uh, be surprised if she didn't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting a lot of buzz. A lot of people talking about it. I think it was one of them. Didn't it break the record for Netflix, Netflix most watched miniseries uh, right off the jump? So a lot of people are into this. And I know chess sets were like one of the most hot items uh, mm -hmm. at, at Christmas this year, going back to your original point, Mike. What'd you give it, Mike? Champ, is it okay if I give my grade now? Yes, is Mike, that, I will allow you. you. Yes, I will allow Thanks. you to give your grade. Yes. Uh, I give this one an A. I thought this was just excellent. And I'll say just one last thing if I can. I loved that they did this as a miniseries. I think way too many times when you have a really great story that's just a little bit longer than a typical movie plot, uh, they try to like chop down a lot of like good emotional character development just to like kind of squeeze it into like a hour 45 to two hour format. Um, I love that we're seeing more really good books get that long like longer storytelling quality of on, on TV. I love that we're seeing more TV shows of books. I love that we're seeing more mini series of books. And I also love that they were just okay with, you know what, this doesn't work as a TV show, yeah, but also doesn't work. let's just do mini series. Like more stuff should be mini series. So well, I'm yeah. glad that we're seeing like 
a good mini series like this gets so popular. I, I think, yeah, that's a benefit of the streaming services. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. if, if, you know, it, it used to either go to the theater and it needed to be boxed in into an hour and a half to two and a half hours, or it had to be a billable, bankable, you know, 12 plus episode series. And with these streaming services, yeah. you, they're able to fit it in better into what it should be. So I agree. Well, that was just to say too, and I, I think I posted it on our second day page, but like this guy had been trying to make, get this movie made for like 30 years. Yeah. And it took them that long for the system to kind of catch up with the storytelling that already existed. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope some of these older books do get like maybe rediscovered and we do get to see really quality versions of them translate into film not just so that they can be enjoyed as, as the art of, of filmmaking, but also that maybe then people can go back and read the books too. That was the other thing. Wonder Woman did not need to be two and a half hours long. <laughs> I just wanted to say that real quick. Um, but uh, yeah, that's Queen's Gambit. It's on Netflix. Uh, I'm going to continue watching it. Um, I'm really so excited to see how it plays out because I'm definitely, uh, definitely into it two episodes in. All right, we're gonna end. The, we're gonna roll into the second half of the podcast here, and, and end it with a couple of films that have gotten some Oscar buzz, both for acting and uh, technical awards and directing awards. Uh, we're gonna start it off with a film called Mank. It's directed by the great David Fincher. It's on Netflix now. Uh, Mank uh, tells a story. It's 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter. Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane, which is of course the classic film from 1941 considered by many to be the greatest film of all time. Um, Maybe we can talk about that for a little bit. This film was shot completely in black and white. I found it to be uh, pretty enthralling and interesting, but Mike, I'll I'll throw it to you first. Uh, What did you, what are some of your initial, your initial thoughts on Mank? Um, Initial thought. Gary Oldman is one of the greatest actors of all time. Boss. Say that right now. Um, So, yeah, like you said, this is about the behind the scenes of how um, Citizen Kane was written. So it's really about this character, Herman J. Mankiewicz, who um, was a famous screenwriter and just kind of um, big personality in Hollywood back in those days. And so it's really about him writing it and it kind of cuts back and forth between the experiences of him actually writing it. And then some of the fallout of him writing it and even some of the earlier before he starts writing it. So I would say that right off the bat, this is a movie that's going to jump around a bit in its time narrative as you're watching it. So just be prepared for that. Um, Some of that, kind of threw me off a little bit in the in the energy of the movie where i'm like wait where are we now why, why are we showing this why didn't we why didn't we show this earlier why do we have to jump back and do this part now um so i think a rewatch maybe might make that a little bit more solid for me but the first time you're watching it like it did kind of throw me off a little bit however the writing of this movie is just so strong it's a screenplay by jack fincher this movie is very well written the character development of the writing the dialogue of the writing, just like the, you know, the reflection to the actual Citizen Kane film, the way like life is starting to mirror art. And then the way the art about that life is now starting to mirror the, the art of that life too. Like it's, it's very meta in a lot of ways, but beautifully. So um, there are definitely two scenes. I remember champ, you, you and I were texting about this movie and you were texting me as you were watching. I think I like started watching it like an hour after you started. I'm like, okay. I'm jumping on. And you were like, dude, you're going to get to a scene just you'll know when you get to it and you just sent me like a bunch of fire text emojis because <laughs> how like into that scene you were there were 
weirdly enough, two scenes that I thought you were talking about. That's how good this movie is. There's two incredibly rich, like dialogue moments that are very intense, very deep, and just very revealing to not just the story of Citizen Kane, but really the story of what was happening in Hollywood and in the country in that time. Um, a lot of echoes from today, the politics behind it. Um, yeah, I'll let you jump on it for a second, but I just need to stress again, Gary Oldman is such an amazing actor. Like, yeah. It's just incredible to watch. Yeah, I mean, he's been around forever. We, of course, saw him uh, a couple years ago nominated for an Academy Award for playing Winston Churchill in Finest Hour, uh, which is a movie that I thought was amazing. And he just really embodies the character of Mank in this in this movie. So the first thing that obviously is going to strike you about this movie is it's like stepping in a time machine. It's shot in a style where it could have been made, you know, they're clearly trying to echo the movie that inspires the story, Citizen Kane. So that's shot in black and white in sort of the old school film style where you have like, they even have like little film spots that pop up every once in a while on the screen. So it's shot like it was shot in 1930, which I thought was a really clever idea to sort of transport the viewer back to the time uh, that you, that you were there. So, um, and it was, it was awesome to see Gary Oldman embody this guy who, who was clearly a legend back then. Like I, I read that it was Manx's idea to film the Kansas scenes in Wizard of Oz in black and white. Um, and then before they get to, cause he obviously had it in writing that movie as well. So he, he, that was, I thought maybe that was like a little bit of an ode to that. Like let's film this movie in black and white. Cause it was his idea to do that. The time jumping is a little bit, it does catch you off guard, but again, Citizen Kane is also told in a nonlinear story. So I'm thinking maybe that they're, you know, trying to channel Citizen Kane in that way uh, as well. You mentioned the writing, fantastic. The two dinner scenes are amazing. I also thought the walk and talk where Louis Mayer is explaining what Metro Goldman Mayer like is all about. And they're doing the walk and talk where the uh, Tom Pelfrey and, and Gary Oldman are walking behind him and you yeah, just see the classic. studio execs bustling everywhere and it, <laughs> it's just like take me back to 1930s Hollywood man like it was putting you there this movie the entire time yeah it definitely puts you there and we'll just touch on those two scenes the first scene that I think both really stood out to us is a dinner scene where they are having like they're at Hearst Castle for Mayor's birthday and all these like Hollywood bigwigs are there and they all start talking about the rise of the Nazis and the upcoming election and stuff and uh, Upton Sinclair. And uh, the way they cut back and forth between Mank almost taking on the entire room, uh, the editing of that, it really does like pay homage to Citizen uh, Kane, like the way the angles are shot, the lighting, um, where people are stationed in the room. Um, it's just such a dynamic scene. Um, and then the second scene is a second dinner party. Oh, it's a birthday party. And Manx shows up very, very drunk. Uh, they portray his alcoholism very, um, you know, very accurately, I've heard, uh, in this movie. And uh, he just gives this speech about what the movie's really about. And he does it to all the people that he basically took inspiration of. Yeah. Uh, and he's, like, just calling them out on their lives and a lot of the hypocrisies and the BS. And... Hearst, who's brilliantly played by Charles Dance, he just at the end of this huge epic speech then just escorts him out with also like a really chilling epic speech. Uh, and uh, the right, like just when you have two scenes like that back to back, you're just like, wow. 
You're yeah. just so blown away by the writing of this movie. It's constantly channeling Citizen Kane. I mean, there's obviously parallels to Citizen Kane himself because we're shown Mank's motivations for writing. I mean, Hearst Castle's very clearly Xanadu from Citizen Kane. You know, and we get a good glimpse of it when him and Amanda Seyfried are at the first dinner party when they get some, when they take the air, as they used to say, and they're walking around in the gardens and you see like elephants and, and giraffes and lions walking around in this guy's backyard and you're just like, wow, this is really gluttonous. This is really unnecessary. And you can see why someone like Mank would be so disgusted by someone yeah. like Hearst and why he would be motivated to write this story about him. He also gives that line after the election, which I thought was, it was very timely and not in a way that was over your head, like sla- like slamming you in the face with the comparisons to today's world. But like that line he says, and I wrote down, it was so good. After, after this guy loses the election and they're all discouraged that he says, we have to be vigilant to people sitting in the dark, willingly checking their disbelief at the door. Oof. Yeah. I, I literally like paused it and typed that line down. I was like, that line just... I mean, the writing is, it hits you over the head every time with amazing stuff. Uh, and, I, you know, you mentioned the nonlinear storyline, how it can be a little bit uh, jarring when you're first coming in. You don't really understand where things are going. But the collision of the two timelines, I really think it, it helps to sort of understand the full scope of who Mank is. Because we're seeing him in his later life when he's talking to, uh, to Lily Collins and, and sort of who he's become in the 40s. And then we also see him in the 30s where he's, he was much more cheery and outgoing. He was still a skeptic and he was still like not vibing with this lifestyle. But you could tell he was a little bit more like, well, I'll deal with it. Where in the 40s, he's like, I'm over this shit. Like, I'm so annoyed with everything. So the collision of those two different manks into the one person by the end of the film, when he receives the Academy Award, um, I think is, is really clever. And we get this sort of full scope, fleshed out version of who he was. Well, I mean, that's also kind of funny is that he, he technically doesn't receive the Academy Award because he doesn't go. He's not there. Right. And uh, I, yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like, I think it, maybe it worked for you better than for me. Like, for example, I think like Little Women that Greta Gerwig did, like, I thought the nonlinear, the way she built those scenes into the emotional, like, hits of the story worked really well for me. This one, I didn't work as well for me, especially the scenes where it's, going back to him in bed, writing it um, and his scenes with Lily, Lily Collins, I think was their name. Um, they, they just, those scenes just didn't land as hard for me um, because it was, it just felt like, wait, we're, we're the, all the energy just stopped now. What's going on? Like, so I would say those parts of the nonlinear didn't work for me, but I mean, the writing of this movie was so impressively strong. It, it does like, it left me away. It, like I came away from this movie just being like, wow. Just and blown and we, away by how good it was. We talk a lot about Gary Oldman's performance, but also Amanda Seyfried. Uh, I think this might be the best performance of her career. I mean, she just she just chews the scenery in this. Like, I don't know what it is, if it's the black and white, if it's the the filters that they were using, but you know, she's obviously gorgeous, but she just like glows in this movie. You know what I'm saying? Like she looks like she's like an angel. Like she's so beautiful in this. She really embodies that old Hollywood starlet charisma. Um, you know, where she's got the quick witty talking and the quick responses and she really vibes with Mank on a level that no one else does. I thought she was fantastic in this. Yeah, the way they do those little like relationships he has with other people, like those little those little chemistry moments with all these different unique figures. I love seeing his charisma, the way it doesn't matter who someone is or what part of society they're from, he can find a way in to their personality. I really liked uh 
the way that was portrayed by not just the writing but also Gary Oldman's acting it was incredible. And yeah, she did she did a good job. Evan, good. do you have any uh, thoughts or questions on Mank? No, I'm. I mean, I've got. Uh, I mean, I've got obviously all I need to know in terms of whether or not I'm choosing to watch it. It sounds great. It's. A, I mean, Fincher. I mean, what more do you need to know? I mean, it, it's a Fincher film. I think that it's right. I mean, any film fan um, is going to have an appreciation for what got us to where we are today. And um, the 30s was huge. I mean, you know, the advancement of film in Hollywood in the 30s was incredible. And um, to kind of see that from this, this very unique perspective, I'll have to check it out. I mean, it is, it is a movie. It is a film for film lovers. There's no yeah. doubt about that. I mean, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane is obviously one of the most well-known movies of all time. You know, if you, if you love film, you've seen Citizen Kane. Um, but what this movie does well is Orson Welles is a character in it. And we kind of learned that, like, Orson Welles, yeah, he directed, he created it. But this was Mank's vision. I mean, he, he's the one who wrote it. And he, we see in the movie, he has to fight with Orson Welles about getting credit for it. And, um, you know, I just think we look at Orson Welles as like this revered figure when, uh, I mean, he obviously is. He's a great creative guy. But um, I like that this sort of peels back the curtain to the, to the story behind the story that we all know so well. Um, and for that reason, I think if you love cinema, if you love, have an appreciation for the history of cinema, um, you're going to love this movie. Um, so... Uh, I gave it an eight out of ten. What about you, Mike? Uh, I'd give it an A minus, close to that. Also, just quick shout out to two people I love: Sam Troughton, who's having a great year. He was much in the BBC Robin Hood, but he was in uh, Chernobyl, and now he was in this as John Hausman. And he like, said, "Robin Hood, drink. come back." I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh, can't avoid it for one pot. And, and Tom Tom Burke, who's also a great English actor, he had some also a hit in The Crown this season. Uh, he came up uh, at least on the TV I saw him in and the Musketeers, but yeah, he was Orson Welles. And I thought he did a great job of not only doing enough of Orson Welles to get, you know, Oh, yep. That's Orson Welles. Sounds like him is acting like him, but yet he still was an actor. He didn't just do like some kind of mimic portrayal. He took to Orson Welles, uh, caricatures and made them his own i thought he did a great yeah, job the too. performances across the board were fantastic in this i mean they, they really was and, and the writing i mean those in the cinematography i mean it's a good movie you're gonna see this movie get several nominations at the oscars i think yeah. um so uh did you give us our your grade uh yes i did you did yeah are you I sure gave it, i gave it an a minus oh Okay. Sorry, I'm on beer number two already. So, uh, <laughs> Mank, so would, Mank would be proud. Mank I'm so would be afraid proud. To, so afraid to give my grades for fear that you're going to tell me you don't want them. Stop being so sensitive. All right, let's move on uh, to the final film. Well, Chad, what did you give your – what's your grade? Eight. He gave it. Oh, okay. Sorry, it. I must have missed it. Nobody no listens. listens. No one listens around here. We don't, we don't even listen to our own podcast. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the problem with America. Nobody <laughs> listens to anyone. All right. Let's move on to something else that was wrong with America, except it was in the 60s. Uh, it's the final film we're going to review today <laughs> on the episode of uh, the Second Day Film Podcast, the final episode of 2020. Um, it is called The Trial of the Chicago 7. This is another Netflix movie, but the plot summer in IMDb. 
The story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, sorry, Illinois. I hate when people put S's on that. Um, but this is directed and written by Aaron Sorkin. It stars an ensemble cast including Eddie Redmayne, Alex Sharp, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, John Carroll Lynch, Yaha Abdul-Mateen II, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Frank Langella, uh, Michael Keaton, John Dorman. We, this is a great ensemble cast. When they say ensemble cast, they really mean it for this movie. Um, so directed by Aaron Sorkin, obviously Aaron Sorkin really well known as a, uh, a screenwriter for a lot of movies. Um, David Fincher films. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, 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 he goes with them, but, uh, yeah. you know, A Few Good Men, uh, and The American President, The Social Network, Charlie Wilson's War, Moneyball, Steve Jobs, and most recently, he also wrote and directed Molly's Game, which is a movie that I really enjoyed. Uh, came out a couple years ago with Jessica Chastain. Um, but this is only a second film that he's directed. Um, I like this film quite a bit, but Mike, uh, what, what are some of your initial thoughts on it? Well, to be honest, um, Aaron Sorkin is not personally my cup of tea. As he has a, a very unique style. Writer. Um, I understand that he's a very good writer, and I understand that a lot of people like his writing. Um, there are some things of his that I do like, but as a whole, whenever Aaron Sorkin writes something political, it is not usually my favorite handling of political matters. So, just... Keep that in mind that I am already a little bit like, eh. This well, give, give us an example. So, for example, in the in trial this of, film, in this yeah. film, the child Chicago Seven, which tells the story of the famous Chicago Seven trial about a group of anti-Vietnam War protesters who were charged with conspiracy and crossing state lines with the intention of causing riots at the Democratic uh, convention that was in Chicago. Um, I, I think it was 1968. So um, these guys are brought to trial and obviously they have a judge who is just completely throwing out all sense of like order or sense of like even basic rules. Like there was one guy who's brought on who didn't even know them. And uh, he was part of the, I think the black Panthers and uh, he doesn't even have anyone to represent him. And so they're just confirming. He's like, well, my lawyer's not here. He had just gotten like surgery and they just started like proceeding without this guy's lawyer. So like there were clear violations of American rights, like in this courtroom over this case. He also um, happens to be the only black guy on trial. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking that at one point, like when he's just yelling at the judge, this is basically this is BS. Uh, the judge like has them, has him beaten and then handcuffed and gagged in the courtroom. And it's like super hard to watch. And it's, it's just terrible um really did happen though a lot of the stuff that you watch in the movie really did happen but usually the way sorkin like puts his kind of dramatic twist on it i think it almost like like, instead of like giving it this real depth and this real like gray area of like wow like this was such a surreal moment this was so dark like he just kind of turns it into something that just makes you I don't, I'm not like necessarily like he Disney-fies it, but it just, it feels like he he cheapens it somehow. Well, I, I don't really, yeah. He has, I, I let me help you out. He has a really unique writing style and it's come through in his directing where his, I mean, some of his writing trademarks are like these, uh, you know, fast-paced dialogue, extended monologues. You get like, you know, walk and talks. You'll get like this weird cutting where, 
you know, people will like finish each other's sentences or they'll, they'll jump around from different time periods and different people will, they'll literally have three people in three different time periods finish the same sentence. Now, this movie, I think, does a good job using that style because it's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. So this movie is, and when it's called The Trial of the Chicago 7, it is The Trial of Chicago 7. Like, there's nothing else happening here. There's a few flashbacks, but this whole movie pretty much takes place in a courtroom. So I personally felt like Sorkin's style was well-suited for this subject matter because you could take, like, for example, they're obviously retelling what happened in the courtroom, while they're explaining it, we're seeing what's actually happening in real time. So I, I kind of found that entertaining where you could take like a mundane court, court, you know, show. And instead they inverted, they made it more peppy and it jumped around and we got to see what was actually happening. And the, he said, she said stuff. So I thought this film was well suited to Sorkin style, but Mike, if you're already predispositioned to not really liking that style, I can see how it would have bothered you. Well, I think it's it's also just the way that he wants to portray people. Like I thought, um, you know, certain portrayals of, of two characters who I thought were like really well acted, like Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman, really well acted. Jeremy Strong, who is finally getting his recognition through Succession, really well acted. Um, as Jerry Rubin, the, the two guys who were part of the Yippie groups, the Youth International Party. But like at one point it shows them like just being really, I don't know, hard to get along with and weird. And they're like, um like they're teaching people how to make bombs and that kind of thing and then the next scene you're trying to feel it's like well if these are people are like were they were they teaching people to make bombs like if that's what they were doing then yeah i'd say that's a little uh not cool well he definitely Um, characterizes the the chicago seven in a positive light right he we're very clearly meant to root for them even though some of the things they're doing you know inciting violence inciting riots uh, you know, they're trying to stand up for what they believe in, but it feels a little bit weird to root for these people. <laughs> well, know? and that's the thing. It's like, were they? Like, I came away from this being like, I really don't know what actually happened. Like, because Sorkin twisted things to portray certain people as these different characters that he wants you to root for them this way or not. And I'm like, I actually don't know, like, what really happened now. It made me wish, like, this story had been told by someone who was a little less politically motivated with the story and a little bit is more like uh, objectively like or, or almost documentary wise like more like reflective with it i think that yeah. would have been more powerful and that also would have made you feel like you know maybe maybe some of the the true like messiness that really was going on there because i mean yeah like the vietnam war was horrible and what the police were doing with those demonstrators it was terrible like they did do awful things but when you then portray other people as doing awful things too, but it's cute when they do it, you're like, I'm confused. Like, what is... It's a little bit of a double standard. Real, yeah, what's the real message here? And also, it makes... This is a historical movie about a legal case. So there's, there's real facts. There's real people's lives. There's a real... And it just made me wonder, like, what actually did happen? So I found a lot of yeah. the movie, I was, like, just Googling, hey, was this guy really in handcuffs? And it was, like, it was way worse in real life. Like, the guy wasn't just handcuffed for, like, an hour. He was handcuffed for days. And he got out of it at certain points. Like, he actually fought his way out of the gag and out of the handcuffs and started yelling again. I'm, like, wow, that's so inspirational. Why didn't they show that? Like, why did he just... I guess, like, so... And then shut him up. It's, like, no, show the guy getting out of the gag. Like, that really happened, too. It's... I guess I was more like, because I I was just kind of setting all that aside, I guess, and realizing that this is a movie about a, it's a dramatization of a real event. 
Um, you know, it, I, they obviously took creative license. It's very clear that Sorkin has liberal views and he's definitely injecting them into this movie and probably a little bit too much. But some things that I thought the film did really well. I loved, you know, the opening montage where, you know, it's all the different people. We're going to Chicago and this is what we're going to do. And uh, of all the different organizations sort of descending on Chicago and sort of set everything up in this convergence of all these different people. Um, I thought that that was a really good point to sort of set you set the table for what we were about to see. Um, And yes, this movie takes place in the 1960s, but let's be real. This could be a movie about 2020. I mean, the parallels are very obvious here. Um, And I think that's very purposeful. So maybe, you know, he took a little bit of creative license, but in a weird way, watching this movie almost, I don't know if it made me, if better is the right word, but it made me feel more relaxed about our current situation. Like it was depressing because we're still fighting the same fights now that we were fighting in the sixties. But at the same time, it made me feel like, Oh, well, we've actually always been this fucked up. 2020 seems so insane because of a pandemic, but the stuff that this movie's talking about in 1968 are the same topics we're talking about now. So in a way it was like, it made me feel better because I feel like we have this opinion that 2020 is like the most insane thing that's ever happened to America in our lives we've kind of always been a little bit crazy in this country. So are you saying that the silver lining of the message of this movie is that, Hey, don't worry. We've always been awful. Yes, actually <laughs> as messed up as that sounds. Yes. <laughs> what a okay. great takeaway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're not wrong though, that there, there definitely were strong, like, you know, metaphorical, like, you know, experiences that they we were seeing on screen that we relate to today. And it, it was, it wasn't, like some of that stuff, I don't think Sorkin was pushing an agenda or anything. Like that was just real. Like that, that was just definitely accurate to what was happening. And it is, it is sad um, that the movie almost makes it feel like we haven't made much progress. Um, and the the one thing that I we haven't the one specific thing that I found really insightful is that that I thought the movie does well is it puts you inside a riot and shows you like step by step how tensions can rise and get to the yeah. point where like what we've seen. So like you what we've seen in 2020 so like we're we're right in there right you know where it's it it shows uh you know how things build up and reach a boiling point you know and i I really felt like the movie did a nice job sort of showing how these things reach a certain point you know yeah it's a it's a good lesson for maybe people to see like look when you see a bunch of angry protesters um and they're saying hey like the problem is we've become too violent maybe as the police the answer is not to then become violent on them like it's just it's it's just amazing to me that you know when people are calling for peace like they just get attacked like it's it's completely mind-blowingly bad leadership so i hope if you're watching it please learn from it and please don't attack people who are just peacefully protesting. I, I just, I mean, I, I thought the performances throughout were really, really good. I mean, I, I particularly like the scene where uh, Mark, Mark Rylance, who plays their lawyer and Eddie Redmayne um, who plays the leader of, of a different group. I can't remember what they're called, but they're sort of just like recreating who started the riot and they're sort of yelling over each other and, and revisit. We're seeing it unfold on screen what happened and, um, you know, they do show a little bit there, uh, you know, sort of his character flaws and they sort of do show how at least Eddie Redmayne's character might've been in the wrong a little bit there. So, you know, you say they try and we both said that they obviously try and show these people in a sympathetic light, but, you know, I think that they did go into it somewhat and show that these people are clearly flawed, but they're clearly fighting for what they believe in. 
I just thought the performances were great across the board. And for what essentially could have turned out to be a boring courtroom drama, I thought the movie had was entertaining and it was over two hours long and I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was well, well written again. Um, and so I, I was into it, but I like Sorkin style. Like I loved Molly's game. You're getting the same stuff in that where you're just jumping all over the place and you're getting these weird uh, fourth wall inner cuts and all this stuff that seems like it takes you out of the movie. So if you're not into that style, I can see how you would have an issue with it. But Evan, what are, what are some of your thoughts on this conversation we've been having? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, it's kind of a perfect time to release this movie. You know, I, I've, as a journalist, I've worked on a, a couple of stories um, this year that um, have kind of begged the question, at least in the, in, in the case of my stories, in terms of how much has really changed when it comes to race relations and civil rights and how much has, I mean, we've saw protesters in the March on Washington in the 60s, and we see people protesting over the same issues fundamentally today. And I know this obviously was more about war and anti-war protests, but um, the very idea of demonstrating and the message that um, demonstrators are trying to convey and also the way it's being received, which is often different than the intent. I mean, that's a topic, that's a topic we have in America today. Um, so it sounds like a really well-timed release about an issue and a, and a, and a, and a way that protesting is viewed and handled that still we have problems with today. And that's why, that's why I said that I think that that can be sort of insightful for people to watch to see, like, if you've never been in one of these, uh, you know, protests that turn into a riot, you know, the film does sort of give you like a step-by-step look at how things escalate and reach a boiling point. Uh, Mike, you got anything on this? Anything else? I thought the acting was good. And I did like the way he cut between like people talking about it to then going back to showing what happened as they were talking about it. I, I actually thought as a director, he did a pretty good job with the movie. And, and I just want to say, Mike, you're a good guy, except for the possessive pronouns and vague non-modifiers. That's, that's, that's all I want to say. What? <laughs> it's a line from the movie. Never mind. Oh, yeah. Was, uh, see, it's a it wasn't well written, was it? I didn't remember the Yeah, line. it was fantastically written, actually. I gave this movie an 8.5 out of 10. It's in my top five movies of the year. I think it's timely. I think it's well acted. I think it's well written. Um, and for something that could have been pretty boring slog, I thought that Sorkin found a way to make it really interesting. So I liked it quite a bit. Am I allowed to give my grade? Sure. Just well, don't use any vague non-modifiers. <laughs> so I would have given it a higher grade, but then it ended by the, them standing up and reading all the names, which they did earlier in the trial, not the ending. And as they're reading all the names, everyone just starts standing up and clapping. And there's all this dramatic, like, inspirational music. And the judge is like, no, sit down. You will not read the names. You will stop. And he's hanging the gavel. And everyone's just cheering and clapping even more and i'm like this is like so cheesy what a like almost disrespectfully cheesy way to end this story i uh i give it a c plus all right so mike's not a fan uh, throw aaron sorkin off the bridge bury him alive burn him alive uh he's not a fan uh that's not what i said you're inciting you're in, that's inciting language inciting a violent riot yeah. <laughs> oh man uh, Anyways, that's The Trial of Chicago 7. It's on Netflix. You can check it out there. Uh, I do suspect that this is going to get some Oscar buzz too, though. So uh, look out for that. 
Um, but that's going to do it for today's episode of the Second Day Film Podcast. We appreciate uh, you guys for listening uh, all throughout 2020. We're ap- actually wrapping up our third year doing this podcast, Evan. Can you believe that? Hey, it's been a great run so far. And uh, Champ, I-, I know we got to get your uh, your top of films of the year. That's got to be a pod that comes uh, shortly. I know you haven't had a whole lot to choose from, so it should be a little easier this year. I do have a list of more than 30 films that came out this year, though, that I've seen. So okay. I, I've been trying to watch. I, I mean, I, I did go back and watch Fantasy Island out of the fear, out of the, the only hey, purpose, yikes. just so I could see where it would land on my list. So uh, not favorably, not favorably. No. I'll just say no. that. Uh, I'll probably, yeah, I mean, that might have to, the top 10 might have to come a little bit after 2020 because there's a few more Oscar contenders that I want to see. Yeah. Uh, some of them aren't going to be coming out on streaming. So I got to see those um, before, before I do that. But uh, uh, there's some new movies that just came out. Soul, the new Pixar movie just came out on Disney plus excited mm-hmm. to review that. Uh, Mike, you mentioned Ma Rainey's black bottom. Chadwick Boseman's last movie. Yep. Mm. Uh, One night in Miami is a movie that I've heard getting a lot of buzz. It's about a bunch of historical figures that just randomly meet up in Miami. Um, so I definitely want to see that. Um, but we'll definitely stay on top of it. Um, but do you guys, anything else you want to add before we sign off here on 2020? I actually have one reason that I'm actually sad 2020 is ending because when 2020 ends, the office is going off of Netflix and going on to Peacock. So I've been religiously trying to watch the, a little bit of the office every night this month uh so yeah watch the office on netflix while you can you guys because january 1st we're losing it just to add it to the list of things being taken from us in 2020 (laughs) (laughs) anything evan before we sign off um no no i mean like i said before and we've all said i mean this has been a crazy year it's hard to believe 2020 is uh is coming to an end we've got the vaccine for covid starting to make its way in our communities I'm really optimistic that 2021 is going to be better, but um, you know, it's been fun. This a podcast honestly has been fun because it's something we've been able to maintain, um, you know, despite the circumstances. So I thank all the listeners for another great year. Yeah. And we love, love talking film with you. We, we like to give each other some a hard time sometimes, but I uh, really do enjoy talking film with both of you guys. And yeah, like you said, it's a nice distraction to keep our minds off all the craziness going on out in the real world. So uh, much love for that. But uh, yeah, that's going to do it for today's episode. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, like our old episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We really appreciate all you guys for listening throughout the year. Um, And we'll see you in 2021, uh, hopefully at the movie theater. Uh, But until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll see you 